Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. to the beginning. We went back to basics several weeks ago, and we talked about the Bible, why the Bible, why we believe the Bible, why the Bible is trustworthy, and then we did a little bit of church history, and that brought us up to the point where we began looking at the teaching that arose out of the Protestant Reformation, and we talked about the points of Arminianism that were presented by the Remonstrants, and then we talked about the contrary points that were agreed upon at the Synod of Dort by the folks who we refer to to this day as the Reformers. We've talked about some of those differences, and last week we really concentrated on what is known as total depravity, the first of the five doctrines to arise out of the synod at Dort. Now, oftentimes you will hear people talk about this teaching, these doctrines that we believe, and they will say, yes, but the synod really concentrated on the teaching of Paul. 
Whereas if you go back to Jesus, if you go back to the red letter stuff, if you go back to what Jesus actually said and taught, you will find that he was far less harsh than Paul was and that he expressed a teaching of almost universal love and so people create a Jesus after their own imagination, not the Jesus that you find in the Bible. If you stand toe-to-toe with the Bible and you read what Jesus had to say, you will find that he is completely in league theologically with these things that we believe, that we are teaching and presenting, and those things that Paul did, in fact, extrapolate on and teach, but actually you'll find these ideas all the way back in the Old Testament. This is the story of the Bible across the board. I argue that people need to actually read their Bible, understand what is taught in the Bible, look at what Jesus actually said, understand the teaching of Jesus, at least have that working knowledge before you reject it, before you try to mischaracterize it, or before you create a Jesus of your own imagination. You ought to at least know what the Bible actually says and what Jesus actually said. Last week, while picking on Leon a bit, we talked about human inability, human incapability. And we said, despite the fact that Leon may desire, may will, may determine within himself that he's going to do certain things, he can't do those things because his will is limited by his ability. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus saying the exact same thing. We're going to look at Jesus saying that our will is limited by our ability. Because there are several things that Jesus says you simply cannot do. And if you cannot do it, then your will to do it is limited by the fact that you cannot. If there are things that Jesus himself, the Almighty One, if there are things that he says you can't do, then you can't do them, and no matter how much you might pretend you can do them or how much you might want to do them, you can't do them. You, in and of yourself, are limited by your inability to do things that even the Bible, even God, even Jesus requires that you do. And yet your will is limited in its ability to do it. Now I emphasize all that to say, we're going to look at Jesus talk about what you cannot do because the red letter words do in fact say what the whole rest of the Bible says which is consistent with what God has always said about human beings human beings are sinful depraved incapable desperately limited desperately wicked And our thoughts are only evil continually, which is why we are free to sin, but not free to do righteousness. So with that introduction, 
We're going to start in John 3. We'll look at a couple verses from John. We'll throw in a little bit of Matthew in the midst. And we're going to look at the stuff that Jesus said you cannot do. John 3, starting right at verse 3, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, so right away, Jesus created a limitation. He said, your first birth is not adequate. The very fact that you're here is not enough. Something else has to happen, and if it doesn't happen for you, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in everything that it means. As Jesus was talking to Nicodemus here, the only kingdom of God that Nicodemus could have conceived of would be that historic kingdom of God for the nation of Israel that was promised to King David. That's the only thing he could have conceived of. But since we know that Christ is sitting on a throne in heaven, we can also extrapolate out and say that heaven itself is the kingdom of Christ. And you, by your natural human fleshly state, can't ever get there. You can't be part of the kingdom of God. And it's the king of that kingdom who said, you can't go there. And he said it across the board. You can't get there unless something happens for you. You have to be born anothen. That word actually means from above. The translation born again is that idea within the conversation Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about how to be born this second time, how to be regenerated. And Nicodemus misunderstands it and says, is a man going to go back to his mother's womb and be born again? And so Jesus clarifies it as you need to be born from above. You've already been born from here below. You're already born into this dying world. But to be part of the ever living, to have part of everlasting life, you have to be born from above. And if that doesn't happen, you are extremely limited because you cannot be part of the kingdom to come regardless of how you define that kingdom. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and born of the spirit, he cannot He cannot, he can't, nada, goose egg, no way, Uh uh-uh, ain't going to happen, zero, zip. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus started right out in explaining the born-again experience to a fellow Jew. He started right out by explaining the natural limitations of human beings. So that, I think, is why 
the reformers talked so much about human incapacity and inability because that really is where it all begins. If human beings are capable, if human beings can make decisions that result in their everlasting salvation and glory, if human beings can do that, then the rest of the doctrines of grace aren't necessary. But if human beings are absolutely incapable of getting to heaven, of getting to the kingdom of God, if they are incapable without God doing something expressly for them, then the other four logical doctrines of grace are absolutely necessary and completely consistent. Because since we know that there is this deep incapability and the Bible also says at the same time that some people do get saved, then how? How do people get saved? And the beginning of the how is right here. Born again. Born from above. God has to do something expressly for you to regenerate you, to quicken you to enlighten you, to open your ears, to open your eyes, to draw your heart to himself. And if he doesn't do that for you, you're not getting to the kingdom of God. According to Jesus. Turn to John 6 for just a moment. John 6, verse 44. Jesus speaking again. No man can come to me. Okay, what's the essence of salvation? The essence of salvation is come to Jesus. You have to come to Jesus as part of that born from above thing. In order to see the kingdom of God, in order to be eternally saved, you have to. It's an absolute requirement. You have to come to Jesus. You have to put your faith in the finished work of Christ. You have to believe that he is your only eternal salvation. You've got to come to him. And he says, no man can come to me. Okay, that would be a really serious limitation. Something that you have to do, you can't. Where eternal salvation is concerned, where you're entering the kingdom, where you're entering heaven, where you're being eternally in the glory of God, where you're standing in front of God at the judgment and not being sent into outer darkness, all of that is dependent on you coming to Jesus, and Jesus says, you can't. That's how limited your will is. Fortunately, the sentence then has an unless in it which I'm very grateful for. Thank God for the exception. Because no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draws that man. So if God draws a person, that person will come to Christ. That's what it is to be born again. God will get a hold of you. He will enlighten you. He will quicken you. 
He will put faith and repentance in you, and he will bring you to his son as the sacrifice sufficient to save you forever. But you of your own will, your own determination, your own decision-making, you can't come to the one who will give you all of those benefits unless the Father draws you. So again, it all begins with God's drawing. It all begins with God's decision-making. It all begins with God doing for you what you simply cannot do. It's not that you chose, that you decided, that you stirred up your will, that you figured out that God was probably going to be extra beneficial to you, that you were going to get a bigger car and a better house and your children would jump higher and run faster. And so there were all these benefits to coming to Jesus. And so I decided of my own free will that I would come to Jesus. You don't find that kind of thinking in the Bible anywhere. Instead, what you find is human beings have this limitation by their sin where they simply cannot come to Jesus and thank God he plucked some brands from the fire and then brings them to his son it is all God's doing it is none of yours let me put an emphasis on that it is none of yours bold font all capital letters big red letters none it's none of yours you cannot Unless God. So it starts with God. And then Jesus says, the one that God chose, the one that God draws to Christ, that one, I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, well, that's really, really good news. But notice who the actor is in every part of that sentence. The actor is not you. You are passive. You are acted upon. You are acted on by God who draws you. You are acted on by Christ who saves you. You will be acted on by Christ who will raise you again to eternal life, bring you up out of your grave into the resurrection that he demonstrated. This is just good news, good news, good news. But all of that good news starts with God. God did. And without God doing you can't. Are you, are you getting a feel for the can't yet? You're getting a feel for the cannots of Jesus? John 7 then, the next chapter over, in John 7, 34, Jesus explains, you will seek me, but you will not find me. And where I am There you cannot come. He's on his way to heaven. And when he goes back to heaven, human beings cannot go there. Cannot follow him by their own determination, by their own will. His enemies are never going to follow him to his glory. The only way you're going to be able to be where he is is if his father draws you to him, he raises you up on the last day, and then you're able to be where he is, but it's not because you followed him, it's because he brought you there. So he, again, is always the actor, and whenever speaking of human capability, he speaks repeatedly of you 
can't. You can't do it. Next chapter, John 8. Jesus just keeps talking these can'ts, these cannots. John 8, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in verse 43 says, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? And then he explains why it is that they don't understand him. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Because you haven't properly interpreted me. That's not what it says. You don't understand what I'm saying. It is because you cannot hear my word. That means that Jesus could and did stood right in front of his enemies, the Pharisees, and spoke the words of eternal life. They misunderstood them, and Jesus didn't even give them credit for their misunderstanding. He said, you know why you don't understand it? Because these are the words of eternal life, and you in your death don't have the ability to understand what I'm talking about. They are restricted from understanding the words that would lead to eternal life. That's the human condition. Humans cannot hear the word of God. Have you ever spoken the words of God to somebody and then you're looking at them and you can tell they're just not getting it? And these are smart people. These are people who can get tremendously large philosophical or even mathematical concepts. And yet you tell them what Jesus said. Something really simple. Like my sheep know my voice. And they'll say, I, what does that mean? I don't get that. What is that all about? Why is it? Is it because they're just unwilling to listen? The Pharisees were willing to listen to Jesus. But they didn't understand it. That is why the Bible so frequently talks about those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. You can have natural eyes and you can see physically what's going on around you. You can have natural ears and you can hear what's going on around you. But you'll never understand eternal, spiritual, godly, Jesus-type things unless God himself opens your ears, opens your mind, opens your heart, opens your eyes, and gives you the ability to understand those things. Otherwise, you, let's say it as a group, cannot you just can't. Matthew 7, Jesus says a very similar thing. Matthew 7, 18, he's talking about trees, but he's creating a parallel between trees and human beings. Matthew 7, verse 18, he says, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. In other words, he being eternally good has no evil in him. God who is nothing but goodness has no sin in him. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. But is the opposite of that true to Jesus? Oh, yes, it is. Neither can a corrupt tree. And you will recall from last week that all of mankind falls into the category of corrupt Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. So what does that say about all humankind? 
all human beings across the board, because they are corrupt, can't bring forth good things. They can't. They cannot. They have a limitation, a really severe limitation, which is even though they'll think, that's it, I'm going to do better. And you all know you've had those moments. <laughs> you all know that you've laid in bed at the end of a day and said, that's it, tomorrow I'm doing better. About anything, tomorrow I'm starting my diet. Tomorrow I quit smoking. Tomorrow I'm not going to swear at anybody. Tomorrow I'm going to stop whatever it is you want to stop. You, you make your plans, you make your willful decisions. That's it, I'm going to do it. And even in those little things, you know how often you fail at it. Now think about heavenly things, truly good things, truly holy things, when holiness is measured by God himself, when he's the standard of holiness. How are you going to be that good as corrupt as you are? Jesus says, you can't. You just can't. You are evil. You are corrupt. Therefore, you cannot bring forth good fruit, good works, genuinely holy enterprises cannot come out of you. Why? Because you are incapable. I'm going back to John again. I know I jumped over to Matthew for just a moment, but that Matthew verse tied into the John 8 verse we looked at. Now I'm in John 14. This is Jesus talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit that will guide people into the truth and the understanding of God and Christ. Jesus says, I will ask the Father. That, by the way, is the same word as pray. I will pray to the Father. And he will give you another helper, parakletos, the one that comes alongside. Once I leave, he will send you another one, like me, another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world only gets if they decide. It's not what it says. Really? You're all staring at me like an oil painting. <laughs> Whom the world cannot receive. Jesus just made a differentiation between his apostles, who he chose, who his father drew, his apostles who had their ears, their eyes opened, his apostles, the ones that he was going to save forever, his apostles and the world. That's the contrast. He said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. That's not up to you. You don't decide it. One more time, God is the actor. You are passive in receiving the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will send you. I will give you the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him, it does not know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Completely different 
than the way he speaks of the world. He speaks of the world in their incapability because human beings in their natural state simply cannot do righteous, holy, good things. Remember, we just read it. A corrupt tree can't bear good fruit. Well, if you decided to get the Holy Spirit, that'd be really good fruit. But you can't decide that. It has to be God by his grace deciding that he is going to call you, give you to his son, and then seal you with his Holy Spirit, guaranteeing you the faith and the perseverance that will carry you all the way to your heavenly destiny. He is the actor. You are the acted upon, left to yourself. You, let's say it as a group, cannot. I'm alone up here, aren't I? Look, the world is at enmity with God. They're not friends of God. They're not deciding to do good things toward God. They're not deciding their own righteousness. They're not exercising their own free will to do heavenly-minded things. The world, according to the Bible, is enemy to God. That's what at enmity means. It means they are constantly warring with him. They're fighting with God. James 4.4 4 says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Friendship with the world that cannot receive the Holy Spirit is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. So the world is at enmity, they are at constant warfare against God, in constant denial against God. Why? Because God did not do for them what he did for you, what he did for his apostles. He did not do for them the regenerative work that would draw them to Christ. Therefore, they remain in their state of ignorance and their state of enmity and their state of againstness, and they'll always remain there. They are not going to suddenly say, oh, I think I'll go to God. Why? Because they cannot. I'm not going to ask you to say it anymore. I'm not going to get you to say it as a group anymore because I know I'm alone up here. I'm just going to keep saying it. You cannot. Are you getting a feel for this cannot thing? Because once you get a hold of it, you're going to start realizing not only the desperate state of human beings, but you're going to realize the astounding grace of a God who would call you and quicken you and enlighten you and draw you to his son and seal you with his Holy Spirit and guarantee you eternity in his kingdom. That can't be anything but grace because you by yourself cannot. You just can't do it. Romans 8, starting at verse 5, even Paul picks up this language of cannot. He's so convinced of it by Jesus' teaching. Romans 8, starting at verse 5, I'm going to read through verse 8. It says, those who are according to the flesh, that means living according to this world. Remember what we just read out of James, friendship with this world is enmity against God. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh after the world, after the prince of the power of the air, the mind that is set on the flesh is death. But the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. He's saying the same thing we just read out of James. The mind that is set on the flesh, the things of this world, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. If we just stopped right there, you could say, but Jim, it says right there that it does not. It does not subject itself. So obviously Paul believed that it was up to you to decide to subject yourself. Except that Paul then clarifies. I think Paul actually wrote that on the piece of papyrus and went, hang on, that's not exactly what I meant to say. Because then he says, it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. The reason that people remain in their enmity against God is because they can't do anything else. That's all they can do. That's why I began the morning by saying, you're free to sin. You can will sin all day long. You're just not free to will good and godly things. The mind that is set on the flesh does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, get this, cannot please God. Can't. Can't do it. That, by the way, is an enormous limitation. If you cannot please God, then you are always the enemy of God. You can't be anything else. And that is the sad and genuinely pathetic state of the world. I'm sorry, I'm still trying to get this sinus infection out of me. As I think Steve can attest, it takes a while to get it all out of you. So that is a very, very large limitation. So when you look at the world, when you look at the machinations of the world, when you look at the human governance of the world, especially when you look at human attempts at self-governance, when you look at the way the world system works, It's no surprise then that the world system is constantly running as far as it can from God. It can't do anything other than that. As we watch the machinations of this world and we see these things occurring in our society that we say, how? Why? They can't do anything else. When I watch the world, when I watch the news, when I look at my news feeds every day, I'm I'm constantly surprised by the greater depths of depravity that human beings keep engaging in. And then I remind myself not to be surprised because this is the way that the world that cannot will naturally go. 
They can't do godliness. They can't do righteousness. They can't do those things that lead to goodness and holiness. And they cannot please God. They're unable. Okay, I'm back to John one more time. John 15, 4. Jesus says to his apostles, abide in me, which means stay. Stay planted in me. Don't wander away from me. I'm the center of it all. Abide in me and I in you, which means Jesus will stay with you by his Holy Spirit that he has planted in you. He's not going to abandon you. So then since he's not abandoning you, he says, and don't you abandon me. And then he gives an example from horticulture and says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it stays in the vine. In other words, if you chop off a piece of a branch, it doesn't then suddenly grow fruit. It dies. So he uses that as the example and says, I've just said to you, stay in me. I will stay in you. The only way you can bear fruit, the only way you can be productive toward the things of heaven is if you stay in me. Because if you're cut off from me, just like a cut off branch, you're not going to bear fruit. You're just going to shrivel up and die. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. You cannot bear good fruit. You cannot continue in this Christian thing. You cannot continue your course toward holiness and heaven unless you remain in Christ, unless you abide in Christ. If you're cut off from him, then you cannot. You can't bear any fruit. You can't do any good and godly thing unless you abide in him. And he says that, unless you abide in me. We can't bear fruit without being connected to Christ. That's just a simple fact from the mouth of Jesus himself. And so then Paul picks up that idea. In Galatians 5, in verse 17, he picks up that same idea and says, because the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh because these are in opposition to one another so that you cannot do the things that you please. So your flesh that you have to live in until Jesus either comes to get us or you naturally pass away and then he raises you up out of your grave. I'm kind of hoping for the first one. Still, I'm holding on to that hope. Till I draw my last breath, I'm still going to be praying, send your son. Now would be good. But he says here, while you're living in this human state, on this human planet, you've got the spirit of God inside you in a fleshly body. And the spirit of God and your sinful flesh are warring against each other. And as a result of that, because they're in opposition to each other, you may not do the things that you please. Now, the reason that I bring that verse up 
is because I think Paul is saying it in a positive way that you may want in your flesh. There may be things that you desire to do, but because you have the spirit of God in you, you'll find you can't do them anymore. But that's still a limitation on your will. Your will is still limited either by the Holy Spirit or by your sinful incapability. Either way, you are not free. Now, you could also read that verse from Paul as saying you can't do the things that you want to do because you do have the Spirit in you inspiring you to goodness, inspiring you to better works. And yet the reason that you don't do those better works is because you're living in this flesh. And even though you may want to do it, today's the day I give up sugar. Whatever it is you want to do, you can't. You find that you just can't because you're living in this flesh. So regardless of whether it's evil things you can't do anymore or whether it's holy things that you can't find the ability to do, That warfare continues inside you because you have the spirit of God inside you while you're living in this sinful flesh. And the two are at enmity with each other. They are warring with each other. And therefore, you just can't do what you want to do. I say one more time across the board, your will is limited. Now, this has all been New Testament stuff. But the Old Testament says the very same thing. This isn't something unique that Jesus and Paul dreamed up. This is consistent with the Old Testament scripture. Jeremiah 13, 23. What do you think Jeremiah was getting at when he asked the question, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? What was he getting at? He was getting at the same thing that Jesus was getting at when he said, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to your stature. I'm 5'6". In my head, I'm 6'3". I would like to be taller. I would like to grow hair. Boy, if there was any way by my will to not lose my hair, I'd be the guy to have done it. I really didn't want to lose my hair. Okay, so here's Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Here's Jesus in the New Testament, both saying the same thing, asking the question, can you change anything about yourself? Can you change your skin? No, you've got the skin you were born in, and that's the skin you have to live your whole life in, and you can't change it, which is why he said, can a leopard change his spots? A leopard can't sit down one day and by taking thought changes spots into stripes so that he looks more tigery. He might want to do that. I don't know if these are the kinds of things that leopards muse on. They may want to do that, but they can't. And Jeremiah uses that example to demonstrate your inability because the second half of the sentence is, then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So if your mind, if your flesh, if your humanity is evil, and only evil continually, as we read last week, God looked down from heaven, and he saw that everything about human beings was only evil continually. Well, if that is your natural state, 
then Jeremiah says, well, then you can't do some good. Little bits of good did not creep in. You're only capable of doing what you're capable of. And by the way, you're incapable of changing anything about you. Thank God you get to the New Testament and you find out that some people do change, but it's not them that changes themselves. It's God that changes them. So God, again, gets all the glory, all the credit. It's all by his grace. But this teaching of human inability and the cannots run all the way through the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, ever since Adam fell, our sinful inclination makes us completely incapable of doing anything that would please or obligate or convince God. Therefore, if God ends up pleased with you, and I love the places in the Bible where it says that God does all his good pleasure, and part of his good pleasure is to save some people, you go read Ephesians 1 and it says he's saving people, he's predestining people by his own good pleasure, which means you can't please him, so he pleased himself by saving you. Because God does his own good pleasure. We, meanwhile, are just the products of our nature. We can't help ourselves. That's the way we're born, and we're without any choice. Man, born into a state of wickedness and ruin, is absolutely powerless to act against his own nature and do anything that's good, that's holy, that's right. Now, we as human beings define goodness relatively we look at other people and we say well I'm doing good when I compare myself to them but the standard is God his absolute righteous holy standard nobody ever hit and in fact not only did we not rise to the standardness of God's holiness we couldn't even keep the law down here on earth Because our flesh is at enmity with God and his commands. So that puts us in human bondage. That makes us slave to something. Jesus says in John 8, what we're enslaved to is our sin. He puts it this way. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever commits sin is the bondservant of sin. You don't just sin and it's a a passing fancy. The reason that you sin is because you are sold out to it. It's got you in its clutches. You are born into sinfulness and therefore you sin because you are the absolute slave, the servant, the bond slave of sin. That's why you sin. Your sinfulness demonstrates and proves that you are sold out utterly to sin. If you weren't the servant of your master sin, you wouldn't be sinning. You'd be rejecting that. But the very fact that you sin proves you are the servant of sin. That's not according to Jim. That's according to Jesus. Jesus himself said, you are the servant of sin when you commit sin. Why? Because you cannot do holiness. You cannot do righteousness. You cannot do goodness. You don't have the capability to do that. 
So then Paul picks it up in Romans 7. We all know Romans 7 where Paul is wrestling with human inability to justify themselves by the law. But listen to Paul say, Romans 7 starting at verse 23, I see another law in my body, in my members, in my flesh. I see this other law. I want to do the things of God. This is that warfare we were talking about. I want to do the things of God, but I have this other law in me, this law of sin that courses through my veins. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Okay, so Paul puts it, you're captured. You're brought into captivity to the law of sin. Jesus says, you are the bond slave of sin. It's why Paul ultimately cried out at the end of that, oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Okay, so why am I taking all this time to pound on you and bum you out completely and tell you what a wretched sinner you are? Why am I taking the time to do all that? Because I'm trying to drive you to the very place that Paul reached. I'm trying to drive you to the point where you say, oh, wretched person that I am, that you will recognize within yourself your own inability that you will recognize your incapability to get to God in heaven so that you will cry out, oh, woe is me. And then you'll ask the question, who's going to deliver me? Well, now we've got an answer. We can answer that question. Who's going to deliver me? Run to Christ. Go to Christ. That's the only answer you have. The answer is not in you. You can study yourself and gaze at your works for the rest of your life and you're never going to reach the point where you were ever anything other than a wretched sinner sold out to sin. Who will deliver you from this fleshly body, this body of death, this body is dying because of sin? Who will deliver you? And that, by the way, is a very good place to be in the state of who's going to deliver me? A man is no more capable of using his will to resist the law of sin in his body than he is of utilizing his will to release him from the law, any natural law. You can't will yourself out of gravity. Nobody floats to the ceiling because they decided. Well, if you can't do that, well, then you can't decide your way out of the law of sin. As long as you're in this human body, you're going to be a sinner. And I've said this so many times, but get it right. We are not sinners because we sinned. We sin because we're sinners. Because that's who we are, that's how we You all do know, by the way, do you not, that the word translated sin, one of the words translated sin, is the word hamartia. That Greek word hamartia means, essentially, to miss the mark, to miss the goal. And so our sinfulness before God speaks to our inability to hit that high mark. 
we, we can't reach the goal of God's righteous holiness. And that means that everything we do, everything we are, everything about us, all of our incapability to reach the high mark of God is therefore sin. So our sin is pervasive. It's all the way everything we are, everything we do, everything we think, everything. Sin is our defining characteristic as human beings. And we all, as a group, miss the mark of God's high, perfect mark. Romans 3, 16 to 18 says, destruction and misery are in their way, speaking of humans. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. None. That's what I mean when I say human incapability. You are incapable of even having reverence toward God. Therefore, you can't worship God. Therefore, you can't please God. Therefore, you certainly can't obligate God. And therefore, you cannot choose God. You cannot make Jesus Lord and Savior. You cannot choose Jesus. He has to do it all for you. And that takes us to the really good news that I'm going to leave you on this morning. And then we're going to extrapolate on it more next week if it is true that we are all sinful and depraved in our natural state and yet some people get saved since all the verses that we've looked at have said that God is the actor that we are not the actor we do not instigate our own salvation God instigates our salvation and he instigates our salvation for some People, but he obviously doesn't do that for everybody because Jesus himself said that the Holy Spirit is going to be given to his people, but not to the world. So if he's not giving his Holy Spirit to the world, and if when he prays, he says, I pray not for the world, I pray for those that you gave me. If that is the fact, if that is the case, then how does God decide Which people? How does he decide who's going to be saved? Well, that's going to take us into unconditional election. Because the Arminian contingent argued at the Synod of Dort that God saved people based on his foreknowledge that those people were going to decide for him. God looked down the long telescope of time and he saw which people were going to have faith in him. And once he saw that those people were going to have faith, he then chose them in response. The reformers, the remonstrants at the Synod of Dort responded, no, that's not the way it works. It can't be the way it works because after all, if God looked down the long telescope of time to find the good people, he'd be looking forever because there are no good people. What's he going to see about you except that you're depraved? Remembering again that this is God looking at people prior to electing them. He's looking at people who supposedly are just choosing him 
And nobody ever did that, according to everything we've read about the depravity of human beings. Nobody ever chose them. Bad trees don't bear good fruit. And choosing Jesus would be really, really good fruit. So since nobody can, again, the cannots, since nobody can do that, if Jesus looked down the long telescope of time, if God looked at all of mankind, all he would see is the very same thing that we read last week, that he looked at all of mankind and saw that they were nothing but wickedness continually. He's already told us what he sees when he looks at humans. So if he looks into the future at humans, they're not suddenly going to shape up and fly right. They're going to continue in that wicked state of evil and enmity against God. Therefore, it has to be God who is doing the choosing. Again, according to what Ephesians 1 says that I quoted earlier, he does the choosing according to his own good will to demonstrate the glory of his own graciousness. He's being kind to people who don't deserve it. Now, by the way, if he was choosing the people who deserved it, that's not grace. Paul argues that. Paul argues if it were of works, well, then it's a debt. God is just paying back a debt that he owes. But for it to genuinely be grace, according to Paul, it has to be because of no merit whatsoever inside the person he's saving. That's why we refer to it as unconditional election. God elects, but not based on conditions. He doesn't say, I'll elect you if you, if you'll just choose my son, if you'll just decide, if you'll just get good, if you'll clean yourself up, if you'll sin slightly less than you did last week. If, you, if God put some kind of condition on you, number one, you wouldn't do it because you know you. And number two, if he put conditions on it, then it would still be up to the human being to live up to the condition. And so the human being would still be saving himself. It has to be God doing the choosing with no conditions for it to be grace. And that is not only what the Bible says. But that's what the remonstrance concluded. Remember again that in Ephesians 1.4, I'm going to keep referencing Ephesians for a moment. In Ephesians 1.4, we read that the election took place before the foundation of the world. That's the language of Ephesians 1.4 that God chose before the foundation of the world. And then we read that he wrote names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, if that is true, what had anybody or what could anybody do considering nobody existed? Then God couldn't have predicated his choice on what people were doing. There were no people doing anything. There was nobody for God to size up, to measure by, to compare to. Prior to man doing anything at all, prior to man even being created, God chose and then wrote names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Therefore, we have to conclude that this election was without condition. The very nature of the election, as I just said, has to be by pure and sovereign grace. And if it is by grace, then it can't be based on a condition. Look, God is fully self-sufficient. 
God is the only being in the entire universe whose existence depends on himself. That's why he said to Moses, when Moses said, who should I say sent me? His answer was, you go tell Pharaoh, I am. That was all the explanation of himself that God ever offered. He didn't explain himself. Where did I come from? What's my background? Where's my history? You just say, he is. God who gives himself the proper name, I am because I am. That's why I am. I am because, well, I I am. That's the only explanation God gives of himself. So therefore, since he is the only self-sufficient being in the entire universe, you don't add anything to him. He's fully self-sufficient. He created everything that is, including you. But you didn't add anything to him. You didn't complete him. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, was always complete and always content within themselves. God exists because he exists. He's the only being whose purpose for being resides solely within himself. So everything else, everything he does, is exactly what he chose to do. Everything he does, he does according to his good pleasure and intention. Whatever he does, that's what he wants to do. So he chooses some people who are going to eternally reside with him in his heavenly kingdom. He created a heavenly kingdom and then created human beings for the purpose of glorifying himself. That's why we exist, is so that he can glorify himself, so that the I am can continue to demonstrate his I am-ness. We didn't decide anything. We never did anything. He chose, he decided before he made the worlds. Now in John 14, 6, we read Jesus explain, I am the way, this is how you get to heaven, I am the truth. He is the very embodiment of, of all heavenly eternal truth. He's the one you go to to learn the truth, which is why he referred to his Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. He's the way, he's the truth, and he's the way. He is the life eternal. He's the one that grants eternal life to people. And even though he's the way, the truth, and the life, he follows it with no man comes to the Father but by me. You can't get to God. You can't get to the Father, but through Christ. That's the only way. He is the way to get to the Father. And yet in John 6, 44, we read, no man can come to me. The only way you get to God is through Christ. And he declared, you can't come to me, except the Father draws you. So big picture. Follow me here. Have I lost you yet? Am I boring anybody? No. Okay. Get the big picture here. Jesus is the only way to God. 
The only way you get to Jesus is if God brings you to Jesus. So then who is the first cause of everything? It's God. It is God himself who brings you to Jesus so that you can come to God. It's God who begins the relationship to bring you to Jesus to bring you to God. And that's what Jesus said. So how are we going to get to him? Obviously, the Father has to draw you. And at that point, I think you're stuck with election. Since God is the first cause, since God is the one who brings you to Jesus, and the only way you can get to God is through Jesus, since God is the one who decides who to bring to Jesus so that they can come to God, then you're stuck with election. You're stuck with God decided who he was going to bring to Jesus. God decided who was going to end up in his presence. You're just kind of stuck with it. He's not arbitrary. He's not drawing people generally. He didn't say all those who want to come to me. Instead, he's drawing particular people. He's drawing particular humans, and he's doing it on purpose. So, okay, here's my definition of election, and then I'm going to let you go, and we'll call it a morning, and next week we will dive deeper into election, and then the week after that, David Morris will be here, and then we will continue on in the doctrines of grace after the Gladeville Conference. Here's the definition of election. Here's the easiest way to define election. I heard this example years ago, and then I got to use it with my father. I'm going to tell you briefly the story of the conversation with my father because I think it's the best way to demonstrate this definition. My dad and I were driving home from the Smoky Mountains. He didn't know it, but he was seven months from dead. At the six-month mark is when the doctor told him that he had liver cancer. There was nothing anybody could do. He had six months. So he says to me, as we're driving quietly in his truck in the snow, he says to me, you know, I don't think I get that election thing. And I mean, we'd been quiet for 20 minutes. Suddenly, dad pounces on election just to make it easy on me. I said, let me see if I can explain it to you. Dad, do you believe you're saved? My dad, of course, raised us in the Lutheran church when he was in Shelbyville. He was uh, one of the deacons at a Presbyterian church there. So I said to him, do you think you're saved? So, of course, he said, yes. I said, okay, who saved you? Did you save you or did God save you? He thought for a moment and then he said, well, God, it has to be God. God saved me. I said, okay, did he do that by accident or did he do it on purpose? He said, well, I have to say it's on purpose. I mean, it's God. He does things on purpose. I said, dad, that's election. God saves some people on purpose. Once you get that, the whole election question clears up for you. God saves some people, and he does it on purpose, according to his own good pleasure, according to his own good will. And if he decides he's going to save you, 
He's going to choose you. He's going to call you. He's going to show you his son, and through his son, you're going to get to God. So you get to be participant in that large eternal equation, but you are passive. You are not the actor. You are the one that is acted upon because, again, these are the doctrines of grace, 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 grace. Questions? That was clear. Well, good. Yes, sir. What an odd question at the end of this message. I did a series several years ago that I've also taught other places when I've gone to other churches to teach that I call the sovereignty series. I begin with God's absolute sovereignty, but then I discuss sovereignty and suffering and sovereignty in evangelism and sovereignty in prayer. And so I think you're asking how does a prayer avail anything with a sovereign God who does whatever he wants to do? That's exactly right. So you're essentially asking the question, why would you pray to a sovereign God? In response, I would say, why would you pray to a God who's anything but sovereign? You would only pray to God who has the ability to do whatever he wants. And praying to that God does avail a lot. It may not change his mind, but it will change yours. It will bring you into conformity with the will of a sovereign God. And in that way, it avails greatly. Now, you don't know what God has in mind. He has his own determinations, but he, in his sovereignty, also told you to pray. So whatever good it's doing in heaven... We may not know. We know that the prayers of the saints are brought like a sweet savor offering before the throne of God. So it obviously has some value in the worship of God because he's the one that instituted it that way. But I think the activity of going to God on a constant basis and talking to him about your needs and talking about your troubles and thanking him and worshiping him, doing all that in prayer brings you into conformity with the God you worship. So I would say that avails a great deal. Yes. Make sense? Thank you, sir. You're more than welcome. I think you've just implied that during this series of basics, I may need to go reteach the sovereignty series along the way as well. Because that was an interesting question. All right, ultimately, here's what we want. We want God to have his own way. Because if God has his own way, by his own good pleasure, he's going to save some people. So we want God to have his own way. That is hymn 388. Turn there in your hymnal. Steve and the musicians will come up and we will sing, Have thine own way, Lord. Sing this like a prayer to God that he does what he is pleased to do. This must be our prayer. And so let's sing, have thine own way. Have thine own way.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.